This morning we are going to share together in the, in the Lord's Supper. Just as a um, kind of an introduction for those that might not be familiar with what that is, uh, the Lord's Supper is um, something that we do on a regular basis in obedience to the command that Jesus left with his disciples that whenever we gather together to celebrate this meal, we refer to as the Lord's Supper, we're to do so in remembrance of him. And so it's one of those things that Jesus told his disciples before he went back to heaven. He says, after I go, um, I'm not going to eat this with you again until I eat it with you anew in the kingdom of God. But he wants us to continue to celebrate this meal together as a reminder to us of the price that he paid to uh, save us from our sin and the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin, uh, in the very beginning, um, Jesus said to Adam, in the day that you eat from the fruit of this tree, you'll surely die. And Adam and Eve ate from it, and sure enough, they died. But what happened is that everybody that was born from Adam and Eve, which includes all of mankind, uh, carried the seed of sin within them and the guilt that came from that initial sin. So as the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says, for as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so every, everywhere we look around us, we see death and dying. And it's the result of sin. Physical death, as we'll see here shortly, is the part that we see. But the Bible's going to talk about another kind of death. And it's that death that Jesus ultimately saved us from. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, this is a verse that we used last week as we studied out of our study in James about uh, how God has sh chosen uh, the poor of this world to be rich in faith. And in our James 1 passage, it was all about how those who are poor ought to rejoice over their high calling. And so the lowly of the earth, while they may not have material earthly treasures, they have been given by God a high calling. Uh, treasures and riches that the world often doesn't recognize. So I'm going to use 2 Corinthians 8, 9 as an introduction to our joining together in the Lord's table here. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And as I study just this one verse, I like to take it apart by the clauses or the phrases that are in it, because each part has something very important for us to learn. The verse starts out with this statement, Paul says to the Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got this word grace. So, in the Bible, how important is the word grace? 
Is it high on the list or is it something that's not that important? Jerry, give us an answer, please. High on the list of really important words in the Bible. It's used 156 times just in the New Testament. It's one of the most important words that we can understand. Grace. Here's how a gift or blessing given that is unearned or undeserved. That's grace. Back when I was growing up, they, they took the word grace and made a, an acronym out of it. Grace was God's riches at Christ's expense. Which really says a lot just in that one word. God's riches at Christ's expense. And so the riches came to us through no expense of our own, but through the, expenses of, through the expense of Christ. So this grace is an attribute of God, and it has to do with giving and with gifts. Grace is all about giving something. And grace is given by God to both the righteous and the unrighteous in different ways. God causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. That's grace. So, in a couple days, it will start raining again. That's grace. Just remember that. God causes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. That's grace. Sometimes God gives grace to the righteous. Sometimes God gives grace to the wicked. And in that example, God gives grace to both. Grace is given by God. He chooses those to whom this grace is given, but no one deserves it. It is God's grace that is the foundation of our salvation. So, let's hear from you just some verses from the Bible that use the word grace. Debbie, my grace is sufficient for you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You have been saved by grace through faith. Any others? Of the fullness of God's grace, we have all received blessing. Was it one after another, right? Multiple blessings. Grace. Now remember, the grace word, what does that mean? That means that these blessings that we have in regard to our salvation especially, is a gift a gracious gift that God has given to us without any payment on our behalf, without any deserving on our behalf, on, uh, from our part. It's a pretty common word. I know you're all familiar with it. Thus Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, 
Paul goes on to talk about the riches of Christ. Do you see it there? That though he was rich, because what Paul's doing in this verse now is he's describing for us, this is the grace that you know about. And he starts out with this. That though he was rich, who's he? Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Now the main statement in verse 9 that we're looking at here is the statement, he became poor. That's the main statement in that verse. And everything else is kind of uh, giving some context to it. So before Christ became poor, it says he was rich. Although he was rich, tells us that before Christ became poor, he was rich. In what way was Christ rich? If you talk to people today about someone who is rich, typically what would they be thinking of? Money, possessions, material things. We think of riches in terms of earthly riches. Um, now there are earthly riches that are not material riches, such as, hi Linda, <laughs> health, creation, godly family or a stable family or a loving family. Those are, uh, yeah. That we have these relational riches that are of great value to us. Some of them that we would not exchange for money. In what way was Christ rich before he became poor? And the verse I'd like you to just turn ahead to is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where there's just a little bit of a description there of the riches that Christ had before he became poor. Now we'll talk about his poverty in a minute, but let's just think ahead. When did Jesus Christ become poor? So the become word's pretty important. To become something means that you, you, you are in a state or condition that you weren't in before. He was rich he became poor. Let's just get the answer out of the way right now. When did he become poor? He became poor when he came to earth. What we call the incarnation. When was he rich? Well, he was rich before he came to earth. Because when he came to earth, he became poor. Rich beforehand. Philippians 2, verse um, well, let's start with 5. Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's going to introduce an attitude that Christ had, and, and, and we're supposed to have that same attitude. Okay? So watch your attitude on this, because this is what our attitudes are supposed to be. Now, verse 6 tells us, the riches of Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In these verses that we just read out of Philippians 2, where do you see the riches of Christ that he gave up when he became poor? Equality with God. Where else? He existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Where do we see his poverty? Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found as an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. Um, what's the difference between stating it this way about Jesus? He was emptied versus he humbled himself. I'm sorry. He was emptied versus he emptied himself. What's the difference in, in those two different forms? Choice. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. Nobody emptied him. No one humbled him. This is individual, personal choice. Christ emptied himself. He humbled himself when he became poor. So, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. When Jesus came to earth, well, let me back up. Before Jesus came to earth, what was Jesus' relationship with God before he came to earth? was the form of God, okay? What are we saying by that? Here, John 1.1, 1, 1, okay? So we're going to, remember that word became? We're going to see it again in these two verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, John 1.1, 1, 1, we have two gods. The Word was God, and the word was with God. No outcry from the crowd here? Come on. There is only one God. He exists in a form that we have no way of identifying with because we can't exist this way. But God exists in a Trinitarian form. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Those three, God, singular, sing, a single God in three persons. That's what the word Trinity means. The word Trinity is not used in the Bible, but the concept 
for which the word was coined, is used in the Bible, tri, three, unit, one, triunity. When Christ came to earth, he came to earth as God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. You jump down to verse 14, and the word became flesh. He wasn't flesh before, but he became flesh. So this is what this coming to earth in the flesh, God coming to earth in the flesh, living as a man, is what we call the incarnation, which is a word that means to be in flesh. When Jesus came to earth, he did not cease to be God. But he added to his deity, humanity. And Jesus came to earth, and the only way we can properly describe him as he was the God-man. What did he give up when he came to earth? What are the riches that he gave up? And if you uh, take your Bibles and let's turn back to John chapter 17... We'll just look at a couple things in that verse. So back and forth we go. But John 17. And while you're turning there, just to remind you of what we know from the Bible, is that Christ, Jesus, was the one who created all things. And all, ex all things exist through him, and all things exist for him. That's Christ. He's the creator. Well, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So let's, which is it? Who created the heaven and the earth? God did. And yet the New Testament identifies Jesus Christ as the creator of the heaven and the earth. So he did not cease to be, to be deity. He did not cease to be God. But he gave up when he came to earth some of the things that he had in heaven as God. And the thing that Philippians says he gave up in Philippians was he gave up. He did not regard it as robbery, technically, a thing to be grasped. What he gave up was his privilege to use his attributes independently. When Jesus came to earth, everything that he did was in dependence upon God the Father. He told his disciples, the words that I'm speaking to you, I don't speak to you on my own. These are the words that the Father gave to me. And so one of the things that Jesus gave up was the ability on earth to act as an equal with God the Father. That's why when God became flesh, or mankind, he lived as a man. The miracles he performed were by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. The healings he performed by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. The same power by which the apostles would later heal and raise people from the dead. There are some things that Jesus gave up when he was on earth that we just kind of have a clue. For one, 
when the disciples are asking him, when is going to be the time of your return and the establishment of the kingdom of God? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has determined by his own authority. He said the angels in heaven don't know. And he says even the Son himself doesn't know. Well, how can that be? If God who is in heaven knows all things, how could Christ on earth not know the time of his return? Because Jesus is living not as God, He's living as man, in total dependence upon God the Father. Jesus got hungry. Does God ever get hungry? No, he doesn't. Does God ever get thirsty? No, he doesn't. Did Jesus get thirsty? Yes, he did. Did Jesus feel pain? Yes, he did. What else do we know about Jesus? He suffered sorrow, things that are not, that have no effect on God who is in heaven. And so what Jesus gave up was all of those privileges that he had as God by his very nature so that he could come and live as man. Oh, John 17, sorry. This is the Lord's Prayer, as we've been learning in our Thursday, Wednesday group. This is the prayer that Jesus prays to God the Father. And I want you to see verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself for the glory which I had with you before the world was. What did Jesus have before the world was even created that he gave up when he came to earth? The glory of God. Jesus' glory is God. That's why when he came to earth, what did he look like? just looks like a human. What's the glory of God look like? When, we, when God's glory appears in the Bible, what's it look like? Do you know? Visibly. It is a brilliant, blinding light. The perfection of God's character is so pure that it shines forth like a, like a light that will blind you. The glory of the Lord was seen when he anointed the Ark of the Covenant with his presence. When he entered the temple that was built by Moses, the glory of the Lord appeared and it was so bright that the priests could not even enter the temple. That's the glory of the Lord. When Jesus returns, it says he will return with power and great glory. But when he came the first time, he had no glory. He looked like you and I, looked like you and me. And he prays this prayer, Restore to me the glory which I had with you before the world was. He gave that glory up. And then if you look at verse 24 of this same verse, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's a time element in that verse as there was in the previous verse. Before the foundation of the world. 
before the world was. What time is that taking us back to? Tim? That's right. The riches of Christ were the things that he enjoyed in heaven. The attributes of God that he voluntarily restrained himself on earth from using those attributes. It's like when he was tempted. Can God be tempted You got 50% chance of getting it right. No. no, he cannot. And we'll see that in James 1.13. So was Jesus really tempted? I mean, if he's God and God can't be tempted, I mean, is he just playing games with us? And it really wasn't that big a temptation because he can't be tempted. Was Jesus tempted? Yes, he was. Why? Because he's not using his attributes as God. He's living as a man and men can be tempted. The riches, though he was rich, though he was rich, and these are probably the most important words in the verse. Though he was rich, in fact, um, I'll just share a little a little secret, well, it's not a secret, anyway, yet for your sake. Now, when we, write, when we write a sentence or a statement, and we want to emphasize a particular word or part of that sentence or statement, how do we, how do we emphasize it if you're writing something? Maybe an exclamation mark after it. Glorietta, underline it, bold it, different color, circle it, italics. Well, in the language of the New Testament, they have a way of writing that is a little different than ours. The most important part of the sentence is put at the front of the sentence. And when it gets translated into English, we don't keep it that way because it doesn't make sense in English. This phrase right here, yet for your sake, is the part of this verse that's underlined, bold, circled, asterisks. This is the part of this verse that Paul writes to emphasize. This part of the verse. So what part does it play? Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. He became poor for your sake. So what does this, this little phrase here tell us? For our benefit. That's right. We are the ones, we are the reason 
that Jesus, who was rich, gave up his riches and became poor. We are the reason that he did that. And he did that for our benefit, for our sake, for your sake. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Now, the poverty of Christ, we need to understand, and this would take me back to the Philippians passage. When God came to earth to live as a man, that's what's described as he humbled himself. Now, if God came to earth as a man, and he came to earth as the most powerful king among all mankind, would that still be humbling himself from what he was? Yes, it would. The riches he had in heaven compared to the wealthiest riches he could have here on earth would still be a step down for him. But Jesus didn't come as a powerful king. He humbled himself even further. And Philippians says he humbled himself by becoming obedient the point of, to the point of death. So here we see this humbling. He humbled himself when he left heaven and came to earth. That was a, a humbling. When he took upon himself flesh, that was a humbling. Now God can be in all places at, one, at all times, but Jesus, when he was on earth, in how many locations could he be at one time? One. Why? Because he's taken on flesh. That's another of the riches that he gave up. That's another part of the humbling. But he, Philippians says he humbled himself to the point of death. And then there's this little word, even the death on a cross. Dying on a cross in the Roman world was reserved for the lowest of criminals. The humbling of Jesus was such that he became not a man with power and prestige. He humbled himself to become the lowest among men. Dying, even the death on a cross. Death on a cross. Other people have died on crosses. Is that not true? What's different about Jesus' death on the cross? Remember earlier we talked about two kinds of death. There's a physical death and there's a spiritual death. A physical death is when the spirit is removed from the body and the body dies. The second death, the, the book of Revelation describes what's called a second death. And do you know what the second death is in the book of Revelation? It's being cast into the lake of fire. That is referred to as the second death. It is a description of those who will be judged by the wrath of God 
we might commonly refer to it as being in hell. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, that was the death that he was dying. It says in Isaiah 53 that the Lord was pleased to crush him when he was on the cross. The penalty for sin is spiritual death. And the death that Jesus was dying on the cross was not just physical. Thousands of Roman criminals were crucified on crosses. The death that Jesus died on the cross was the death of a sinner undergoing the outpouring of the wrath of God. And we have clues to that by the words that Jesus speaks when he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in all eternity, the Son is forsaken by the Father. Why is the Father doing that? Because Jesus is on that cross in my place. And my sin, which justifiably should have received the wrath of God as an act of judgment and justice, Jesus is on that cross. He's dying in my place. This is the ultimate poverty of Jesus. He not only gave up his life, he underwent the wrath of God for us. Tim? That's right, that's right. Jesus begins up here before, he becomes poor here, and then as we'll see also in, in the Philippians passage, therefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every other name. That name was not given until Jesus first went through the cross. So that, this is back, I'm back in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. So that, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that. Those two words, when you see them introducing a part of a sentence, you know what they introduce? A result. It can be either a purpose or a result. So what is the, he did it for us, we already established that, for what purpose? So that you might become rich. What kind of riches are we talking about? Do we believe that in the gospel we're to be healthy and wealthy with the earthly wealth? Was Jesus wealthy? Earthly wealth? What did he say? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus did what he did. He gave up his riches so that we could gain riches. 
through his poverty so that through his poverty you might become rich. Do you see that? Through his poverty you might become rich. We would never have gained God's riches were it not for Christ's poverty. The purpose for Jesus doing it so that we could become rich. So, what kind of riches do we gain because of what Christ did? So let's talk about what are our riches. Forgiveness of sin. Is that rich? Is that valuable? Yes, it is. Without that forgiveness, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Forgiveness of sin. The Holy Spirit is given. That's, that's a valuable thing, isn't it? That's riches that you can't buy. Tim? Access to God the Father through our prayers and through, our, through the, our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that that's a grace that the world does not have? To be able to access, uh, to, to be able to come into the very presence of the throne of God with boldness and receive mercy and help in time of need? That's not, that's not available. That's not a grace that God has given all the world. That is a grace that has been given only to those in Christ, because it's through Christ's name that we have that access. What else? Peace. Present peace, right here. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have forgiveness of sin, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Is that valuable? Peace. Eternal life. That covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? Is that a grace given to all people? No, it is not. Eternal life. Joy, happiness. Joy, happiness. Here and now, right? Not just in the, in the by and by. Joy and happiness. That comes from the Holy Spirit. We have a hope that we will be our future is, is determined by God that we will be part of the kingdom of God that will last forever in a place where there will be no sin, no sickness, no sadness, no sorrow, no death, none of it. That's the hope that we have. That's the promise that we have. That's the confidence that we have. Having hope in this world is a part of our riches. It came to us through the poverty of Christ. And that's what I want us to remember this morning. The cost of our redemption and the riches that we enjoy came because the price for those riches was paid for by somebody else. Somebody else who didn't deserve the wrath of God, but willingly humbled himself and emptied himself and lived a perfect life perfect life on earth. See, one of the reasons Jesus came to earth, the ultimate reason was to die, but another reason is so that he could show us that man can live a perfect life on earth if he is totally dependent upon God the Father and God the Spirit. Now, the difference with Jesus, he came into the world born of a virgin, and so he was sinless. 
He didn't inherit the sin of Adam, but we did. And so we sin. Jesus is called the second Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. That's right. As a man, he lived a perfect life, but he died. And why did he die? Because he chose to take upon himself my sin, and he willingly chose to die in my place, paying the penalty for my sin. And God the Father accepted that because it came from a sinless substitute. And so God is just in judging me for my sins. But the riches I have is that God's judgment for my sin was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Now how is it that Jesus on the cross can be a substitute for more than one person? Why is it more one person dying for one person? It's because of who Jesus was. Perfect, sinless God-man whose life, because of his sinlessness, was of such great value that God the Father accepted that one death as a payment for the sins of all mankind. And so as we come together for the Lord's Supper this morning, the focus that we're going to really focus on is the price that Jesus paid. And you have to think of his death in terms of really what's going on on the cross. One of the last things Jesus said before he gave up his spirit was, it's finished. What was finished? He said it before he even died physically. Do you realize that? Before he died, among the last words that he said, it is finished. What is it that was finished? The payment for the sins of the world. Finished on the cross. Christ only had to die once. And that death was of such great value. The thing that is horrendous is to realize that the wrath of God against all sinful mankind in totality was borne by Jesus on the cross. How do you even measure that? We can't. So I'd like to just pray and let our minds remember, okay? Because what Jesus did, he did for your sake, okay? Um, Father God, we humble ourselves before you And we acknowledge, Father, that we cannot comprehend not only the depth of our sin in your sight, but the depth of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. 
to realize that if the penalty for sin for one person is to be cast into the lake of fire forever, how can we even comprehend the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus for the sins not of one person but of all persons? The suffering of Christ, the purpose for which he came, Willingly, he emptied himself. Willingly, he humbled himself. Willingly, he went to the cross. And willingly, he bore the pain of the wrath of a holy God for our sake. So, Father, as we come together and remember as Jesus commanded us. I just ask, Lord, that you would help us, first of all, to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. He asks nothing of us to receive those riches other than to believe his word. Our sins will not keep us from the kingdom of God because they have been paid for by the blood of Christ. Thank you for this great grace. May we remember today that the depth of Christ's suffering is a magnificent example of how deeply he loves us. Let us focus on that. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to have uh, the, uh, uh, the elders, if they would come to the front and help serve us. And I'll back the slides up here for Dean. Whoops. You have uh, a small piece of unleavened bread, which is a reflection of um, the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples he was going to be going away, he was going to die. He didn't really understand it. But he gave them this ongoing meal to remind all of us that his death, just as this song we just sang, his death has paid our ransom. And this little piece of broken bread, Jesus said when he's with his disciples, they're eating a Passover meal, a part of the Passover was the eating of unleavened bread, and he took the unleavened bread and he gave it a different meaning than it had in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the unleavened bread was to remind the Israelites how quickly they had to leave Egypt. But Jesus took that and he said, no, this bread now, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. And again, the breaking of his body was an indication of what Jesus was about to undergo on the cross. But he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. And he says, every time you do this, every time you see this bread and it's broken, I want you to remember that's my body. That's what I did for you.
This is my body given for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we just thank you for your willingness. You loved us so greatly and deeply that you were willing to give up the riches of heaven and you absorbed the wrath of a holy God against a sinful mankind. You paid it all. You suffered pain you'd never had before. For the first time in all eternity, you were forsaken by the Father. Lord, these are prices that we simply cannot understand, comprehend, or identify with in any way. But Lord, what we do know for sure is that you did it for us. And we are so grateful for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in our salvation. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. So the next thing we're going to give you is a cup of juice. And so, man, let's go ahead and pass that out. So here we have a small cup of grape juice. Um, the Lord deliberately chose these elements for their visual reminder. We look at this and it's to remind us of blood because this cup represents the blood of Jesus. The body and blood of Jesus both point to his death on the cross for the sins of mankind. So Jesus died on the cross claiming to pay for the sins of mankind. And then he died. So how do we know that when he said it is finished, that it actually was finished, and there was no more sin to pay for? How do we know that? How do we know that it really was done? Resurrection. Resurrection. He rose from the dead. That's right. Within three days, three days later, he came back to life. And not only that, because other men had risen from the dead, remember? But it went further than that. He rose from the dead, and then he ascended back to heaven. And remember, there was a couple other people that ascended to heaven. Uh, Elijah, Enoch. So what's different about Jesus? It's to where he ascended. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And at the right hand of the God the Father, he sits today in a position of supreme authority. God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who are under the earth. So we're remembering through the Lord's Supper the penalty and the price that he paid, but it's the resurrection that showed us that the price was sufficient. And I do not have to be concerned one bit that my sins are completely paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We talked about two deaths. First death is physical death. The second death is spiritual death. And then Jesus talked about two births. He says, you must be born again. So there's two births, 
and there's two deaths. Those who are born twice will only die once. Those who are only born once will die twice. Physical death and spiritual death. For us who have been born again, Jesus has already died that spiritual death for us. Our bodies will die because they're made from the dust of the ground. But we'll receive new bodies reunited with our spirits to live forever in the presence of Christ. Those are among our riches. They came to us at Christ's expense. Remember the cross. Remember what Jesus suffered on the cross. Carrie, could you give thanks to the Lord for the blood that Jesus shed that washes away our sin? Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for you for the remission of your sins. So let's drink together and remember Jesus. How do I get this forgiveness? How, how do I escape the wrath of God from falling on me? rather than upon Jesus. What do I need to do? What do I need to pay? What do I need? What, what, what? Believe. That's simply it. Believe what Jesus said. There are some people that don't believe that when Jesus talked about hell, that it was true. And so essentially what you have to say is Jesus, who's recognized by people around the world as the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth, and you're, you're, you're saying two things. Either he lied or you, mo or you know more than he does. And both of those positions are dangerous to be in. When Jesus talked about wrath, he meant it. And when he talked about forgiveness, he meant it. And we get that forgiveness, one thing, we believe. We believe.